Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we spent some time going over the background of the Thirty Years' War as both a religious conflict and a de facto civil war within the Holy Roman Empire. Today, that war is going to expand into an international one as various European powers get involved for their own reasons. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And last time we were talking about... Really only the first five or six years of the Thirty Years' War, so we have some ground to cover today. Oh, yeah. Um, last we talked, the initial converse, or the, the initial uh, conflict that resulted in the Thirty Years' War, specifically um, a revolt in the kingdom Bohemia, has more or less been put down by the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Ferdinand uh, II uh, Habsburg. But the balance that had been struck by um, what was known as the Treaty of Augsburg in 1555, which sort of codified uh, the relationship of Protestant and Catholic states within the Holy Roman Empire, even though it had kept things relatively stable within the Holy Roman Empire for over half a century, uh, this conflict threatened to upend that um that stability that had been created because might you say it was being thrown out the window (laughs) i suppose you could say that (laughs) um yeah because the the piece as we mentioned last time was really it was really designed for peace time once the armies start marching all bets are off a little bit it didn't really have provisions for that and what's more the political situation within the holy roman empire was so complicated that you know, who had final say over really basic legislative and administrative matters got really muddied. The precise powers that the Holy Roman Emperor held were often rooted more in uh, tradition and in respect of social norms than it did of necessarily a a direct political influence. And most of it uh, uh, required leaders of these little tiny states to just do what he said because he was emperor and that works great when everybody's on the same side but when you've got a bunch of these states in revolt there isn't really a good forum for dealing with that it just doesn't exist in the holy roman empire and you end up in this really interesting situation as leader of one of these states which is what's more important your autonomy the religious beliefs of yourself, of your subjects, of your emperor, uh, of the of the pope, if that matters to you, if you're Catholic or if it doesn't, if you're Protestant, 
whether the um the the pope's approval of the holy roman emperor affects the amount of power he has over your decisions all of this stuff comes into play in in grossly overlapping ways and it causes a lot of confusion and a lot of tension which at the end of the day is being solved mainly by fielding armies which is not always the most subtle way to solve problems like mm-hmm. this so things are a bit of a mess and it's not only a mess in the Holy Roman Empire because nations outside of it are sometimes directly affected. For example, Spain, which is also Habsburg ruled, um, or England, which, uh, you know, the, the sister of the now at this point King Charles, uh, his sister is married to one of the primary players in this sort of Protestant revolution that's occurring within the Holy Roman Empire. And after a few years of, of seeing the way that things are just not cooling off, even with Bohemia uh, removed from the picture, powers like uh, Denmark, Norway, uh, which is the one we're going to be talking about next, are concerned that things could spiral out of control. That if really either side managed to consolidate enough power to overwhelm the other within the Holy Roman Empire, there is the possibility that they could consolidate power militarily and continue on to assert that uh, religious preference over the rest of the continent. And I don't think that necessarily their uh, fears are misplaced in this uh, in this situation. Uh, Bohemia has been suppressed since 1621, and there's been four years of just small to medium-sized flare-ups, smaller to medium-sized cities being put to siege, uh, uh, proper rulers being overthrown and replaced with rulers that uh, are of the, you know, preferred uh, religious persuasion of the victors of the con- uh, conflicts. It's it's a real mess. We absolutely do not have time to get into every single one of these little things because there's so many of them, but it's happening and that's really all we need to know. For Denmark specifically, as we talked about at the very end of the last one, Denmark kind of just sits there up on the uh, on the on the coast of Europe and is relatively exposed to Germany. It's a little peninsula. It's not that big, really, in the grand scheme of things. And it's isolated from the rest of the territory of this kingdom. You know, Norway's safe, but it's far. And, uh, you know, if the sea is not cooperating, you're not really getting anyone from Norway to Denmark to uh, to defend it properly. It's It's quite vulnerable. And with... The Habsburgs creeping further and further north, you know, solidifying their uh, um, influence in Austria, looking uh, towards eventually going to war with the Dutch Republic and hoping to convert them back to Catholicism. The Danes are really surrounded on all sides by Catholics, and the Danes themselves are Protestant. They're concerned that if they don't take action sooner rather than later, they could find themselves the only holdouts against uh, an overwhelmingly Catholic uh, region of Europe. Which wouldn't last long after that. No, it really wouldn't. So the action that's going to be taken by Christian IV is really looking at that as being uh, a deciding factor of of how to proceed. He wants to sort of create almost a buffer state of Lutheran uh, German states within the Holy Roman Empire that are going to protect him as a, as a, a foreign but Lutheran uh, state himself that will at least give him time if something was to go bad. Um, but a much more ideal situation is 
aiding the Lutheran League in or Protestant League in defeating the Catholics, so he never has to worry about this at all. Right. Problem is, even though the Protestant League isn't necessarily going away, the the Catholics do seem to be in a much stronger position after the defeat of Bohemia. So, it's also worth mentioning that Christian is Duke of Holstein, which is a, a German state itself. So, a lot of these nobility have holdings within the Holy Roman Empire as well as their own. That's just what happens when royalty intermarries over centuries in a relatively small geographic area. Right. Um, it's it's hard almost not to own a tiny German state somewhere or other. <laughs> There's so many of them. There's only so much it's, royalty. You know, you turn 13, you just get a Germanic state as a gift. <laughs> Amazing. It's like a goldfish. You got to learn responsibility somehow. <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't joke these are people's lives but some of these places are very very small um anyways fortunately for christian um this period happened to coincide with um a period of like unprecedented stability for denmark norway see they had been at war with sweden on and off since forever basically that is something that goes back to like pre-recorded history kind of thing <laughs> hey, we we you know uh we did an episode on the the vikings and that, that gets touched on briefly is the relationship between norway and sweden um back into like tribal germanic times it's it's a it's a long-standing long-standing uh rivalry so they happened to not be at war with sweden in 1625 in fact sweden was actually paying them some uh war reparations which was helping to kind of fund things a little bit which was nice for them well and uh correct me if i'm wrong mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep all this straight in my head yep. but i think they share religious beliefs they do yes yeah no they were a war for the normal reasons yeah yeah the other stuff territorial expansion and whatnot yeah um also scrapping for the sparse uh resources available in the Scandinavian Peninsula. Right. <laughs> Christian draws together a number of Protestant states in Northwest Germany and basically makes a parallel Protestant League. The Protestant League was still in existence, obviously. They were, you know, pulling together these mercenary groups, but um, they were heavily lacking in, in leadership and often they were operating, you know, in parallel rather than pooling resources completely as they could. And Christian decided to take uh, action in terms of centralizing all of those resources. And so a lot of these states start funneling resources directly into uh, Denmark, Norway, not not as like a, you know, a suzerainty kind of relationship. This isn't like a client state type thing. It's more of a, well, finally, we've got somebody with a strong army on their own. Um, let's, you know, throw him a few hundred men to, to bolster that because he seems to know what he's doing with them. The other interesting thing about Christian is that through all these European nobility marriages that we've been talking about, he happens to be the uncle of both, uh, Elizabeth Stewart and her brother Charles, which means that he's got a connection both to Fe- Frederick V and his whole, you know, king in exile deal, mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, English crown. I keep huh. wanting to say British. It's not Britain yet. Even though the even though Scotland and England are under one crown, they're not actually united yet. It right. is the English crown. In any case, British support is basically ready for the asking uh, for Denmark. There's a there's a long history of support between Denmark and, and Britain. Um, in fact, the 
majority of the British population is kind of Danish in origin if you go back far enough. (laughs) But anyways, the Danes also expected French support. And you're probably wondering at this point, oh yeah, France, they're a thing. What have they been doing this entire time? Yeah, actually, just, you know, they had to have been doing something. Let's talk a little bit about France. I'm thinking back to previous episodes I've been on, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out if any of the conversations we've had that have taken place in France have been in at all the same time period. I don't think so. Nope. I don't don't think think so. France, at this point, is under the rule of Louis XIII and is extremely Catholic. And this is where the dichotomy of Catholicism and Protestantism within the Thirty Years' War starts breaking down, because while they are extremely Catholic, the Bourbons also hate the Habsburgs, because the Habsburgs are more powerful than them, and they like being powerful. Also, France is currently surrounded on three sides by Habsburgs. They've got the Spanish to the southwest they've got uh the spanish netherlands to the north remember part uh, part of that which will more or less become belgium ish uh is still under spanish habsburg rule um it's just kind of cut off from spain right um but even to this day uh you know it's obviously muddy but belgium is more catholic than anything and the netherlands are more protestant than anything those lines still exist in those two uh countries the the king or queen of belgium has to be catholic um not so for the netherlands Hmm. anyways a bit of a sidebar there but they're surrounded on yeah three sides that's where we were um spain uh the spanish netherlands and uh, obviously on the on the east the holy roman empire and sometimes that's more or less direct depending on which states are catholic and which ones are are protestant but the real concern is some of the more major states along the French border, uh, things like Bavaria or Alsace-Lorraine, those areas, um, areas that are going to be fought over heavily for the next several centuries. So these places, these tiny little places sometimes uh, have quite the history of going back and forth. They're they're so small, but so important in in history for various reasons. Right. And sometimes only because they were important the last time around, but that's enough. Anyways. Sounds like a lot of location stuff, too. Oh, definitely. If you're at a good crossing point on the Rhine, you've basically either got it made or are in deep trouble, depending (laughs) on uh, a couple of, uh, a very small list of variables. Right. So the French are in a weird spot in that they don't want to support the Habsburgs because that would just help the people that they see as their enemies, but they also don't want to declare against the Habsburgs because then they're a Catholic nation declaring against another Catholic nation. So for the most part, they've stayed out of things. And they actually had a really good reason for it for the most part, which is that around this time, they're dealing with uh, a civil war situation, um, what's known as the Huguenot Rebellion. Uh, The Huguenots were French Protestants, basically. But the difference, as we talked about at the very beginning of part one between the Holy Roman Empire and France, is that the Holy Roman Empire is so fragmented that the emperor really doesn't have a hope of legislating or mandating a state religion if he wanted to. King of France is very powerful at this point in time. Now, not as powerful as they would eventually become, but still the the, the monarchy is quite strong. Um, Louis XIII was working to 
draw some of that power away from sort of the provincial nobles uh, and and concentrating it uh, in Paris. Um, did you ever read the Three Musketeers and the the other Alexandre Dumas books? Would have been a long time Man ago. Man in the Iron Mask, all those. Um, those all are well, other than Man in the Iron Mask, are, are taking place during the reign of of Louis the Thirteenth. Uh, the Musketeers were serving Louis the Thirteenth. Uh, Cardinal Richelieu is a real guy, uh, head of state, uh, or not? Uh, uh, sorry, Secretary of State under Louis the Thirteenth had a massive impact actually on national policy. Um, so the centralization of France is happening under all of this, and um, the Huguenots who had been somewhat tolerated sort of under uh the previous king uh Henri the fourth were no longer being tolerated and were fighting back so there was a a civil war happening again a religious war happening within france but you know in this case it's a it's a matter of uh internal dissidents being put down by a strong central government rather than this uh almost on equal terms uh battle that's happening in the holy roman empire right so france is tied up with that and it's a really good reason not to get involved in what's happening in the Holy Roman Empire. It sounds like they have a conflict of interest even outside of what's happening in their own country. Mm-hmm. They do, but this is something they can point to on both sides and say, listen, we don't have the time or resources to get involved here. Right. That being said, France had a, ha- a habit of supporting people who aligned with their national interests, sometimes not terribly publicly. And so Christian was thinking he could probably get a piece of that action maybe even some overt uh, military support as things were starting to wind down a little bit with the Huguenots. But yeah, he, he was hoping to get some some financial aid from France. So he's looking at aid from France. He's looking at aid from England, or at least he's hoping that he can get all of these. Um, England, I think, is fairly self-explanatory with his personal relationship with the king. However, there is a bit of a problem there too, which is that England is currently helping to financially and uh, via materiel support the Huguenot rebellion because it's helping to weaken their ally France, who is Catholic and the British are Protestant, their own variant, but uh, whatever works for you, I guess it's strange times. Things are getting very complicated. A little bit. I'm still with you. Good stuff. That's what I'm hoping to hear. So we mentioned that, that Sweden was no longer, uh, at war with, um, Denmark, Norway. Uh, they were paying reparations. A lot of that is because uh, Poland, now free of conflict from the Ottomans, was at conflict with Sweden. And so that tied up the Swedes, the Nor- uh, the, the Denmark Norwegians, uh, didn't have to worry about them hitting their flank in the north and could commit to military action. So all these stars kind of at least seem to align for them a little bit, and they're going to attack. This is a uh, attack. They're just they're trying to get ahead of being attacked it's preemptive action yeah yeah uh, i mean lar- largely what's happening here is that they're they're organizing more than they are specifically uh marching out on campaign right now sweden being a protestant nation despite being a historical enemy they were hoping that they were going to wrap things up with poland relatively quickly and maybe be of some help you'll notice that there's a lot of maybe people will help them out type talk going on here and not a lot of concrete help actually happening yeah and that's i i, I find that relationship really interesting we were just at war a couple of years ago but maybe you'll be all our allies now for religious reasons <laughs> but that's the type of war that we're looking at with the 30 years war right it didn't take long for ferdinand the holy roman emperor to notice what's going on and decide that he wanted none of it 
military estimates in history are always hard because for a number of reasons. Number one, people like to brag about the size of their own armies and tend to inflate them. Number two, people like to diminish the number of people in the other army and deflate them. Or sometimes you go the other way. You inflate the number in the other army and deflate your own so it looks really amazing when you beat them. Number three, you get into this weird place where, you know, a standard German uh, whatever unit of military organization is supposed to have X number of people in it, except they almost never do. Mm. And so while technically it should be easy to say like 10 battalions should have X number of people in them, they don't. They never, ever do. That being said, I think this number is a little more wishy-washy than even the usual. (laughs) Despite that, Ferdinand sends somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 soldiers to invade Denmark. We have a wide range. It's a very wide range. It's a lot of people, though. Either way. Even at the low end, that's a lot of people. And Denmark is very small. And it goes very well for the emperor. It does not go terribly well for Christian. All this help that he had been kind of counting on never really materialized. The Swedes were more tied up with Poland than they were expecting to be, and they couldn't really send any help. Uh, The French were just too tied up with the Huguenots to offer any substantial, like, real actual aid in the form of, uh, you know, detachments or anything like that. Um, And we're still worried about getting directly involved in this conflict because that risked out and out war with the Habsburgs and they weren't quite ready for that. Uh, Things were messy at home. Um, Likewise, they couldn't really spare the money to support the Danes that uh, Denmark was kind of hoping for. Um, The British were still kind of busy in other ways, partially helping the Huguenots, yes, but they had been um, sending those Scottish troops Mm. in droves to the Holy Roman Empire, supporting various little Protestant states. And they kind of went like, we're already doing our part. Like, we don't have a lot more that we can give to you directly right now. Maybe in a couple more years, we can muster some more troops and we're happy to help you guys out. But like your timing, eh, it's a little bit off. So maybe Christian jumped the gun? Christian jumped the gun. Yeah. That being said, I'm not sure that he ever would have had a better time to do it. Right. That's the problem with things like this. If he had been successful, this would have been called one of the most uh, brilliant uh, military maneuvers of all time. Likewise, if he had gotten rolled this badly, but had done nothing to try and prepare for it, we would have considered a complete pushover. So I don't know how much we can necessarily blame him for that. Maybe he should have gotten a little bit more financing in uh, in place before he pulled the trigger on like being very public about all of this. But right. only so much of that can be done secretly. Uh, he's got to travel through many foreign states to get to people who are going to help him. People talk. <laughs> Basically, the entire continental Denmark is taken over pretty quickly. But the capital of Copenhagen is not on the the peninsula itself. It's not part of Jutland. It's uh, on a uh, it's on an island. It's known as Zealand. This is the Zealand that New Zealand refers to. Hmm. Um, and here's a crazy thing about the Holy Roman Empire: um, the emperor didn't have a fleet of ships. <laughs> Why would he? He's pretty mainland. Like, other than Spain. Once you think about it for a second, yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Why would he have a fleet? He doesn't have an army. 
Why would there be an Imperial fleet? No, yeah, makes sense. Now, there is a port on the mainland that belongs to Protestants that they kind of want to take. It's called Stralsund. And military commanders are going like, well, maybe we just take that and we build some ships and we go over and we take Copenhagen. But they realize that it's really well defended. and It takes a long time and a lot of money to build boats. And maybe this isn't worth it. They kind of talk to some of their allies about getting ships, but all of those Baltic states are not really that interested in giving the Holy Roman Emperor a fleet because their economic livelihoods rely on controlling that area. Uh, specifically, they talk to the Catholic Poles and say, hey, maybe we can have a fleet. And the Poles go, yeah, maybe you can work something else out. I don't know, like not having one. <laughs> maybe maybe we don't want you having a competing fleet in our <laughs> In our little section of the North Sea. Yeah. And so they don't really go after Copenhagen. Now, the Danes are more or less um, neutralized by all of this. There's not much more they can do. They've lost all of that influence that they were managing to curry over a, a number of years. I mean, I'm, I'm making this sound like it all, all happens pretty quickly, but they spent years building up all this goodwill. Um, it's it's uh, three years. It's, it's 1628 before Christian agrees to negotiate with uh, the Habsburgs. Um, and that negotiation goes a lot like the one that was had with Transylvania. Namely, he um, was able to keep Denmark, Norway on the condition that he abandoned all support for any Protestant Germanic states. So the MO for the imperial court here is keep this a regional conflict, get foreign powers out of this we don't want them involved as soon as it turns into a, a war that involves multiple foreign powers we have issues mm. because we're not looking at putting down little states that are sometimes the size of a village of a couple hundred people we're dealing with fighting france we're dealing with fighting russia or england or potentially even spain if things went bad enough and we don't want that on our plates get them out at whatever cost it takes if it is, we will destroy you on one hand, or else you can keep your states but never get involved on the other hand, they'll take that. It seems pretty generous, especially in the case of Denmark, when Denmark was defeated so soundly. That's true. But they're not interested in destroying Denmark. As much as that was a concern of Christians, they need to get their house in order before there's anything even remotely like that that goes, goes on. You have an issue when fighting Denmark as the Holy Roman Empire, which is that exact uh, uh, relationship that Christian tried to cash in on, England. It's one thing for England to say, we're not going to get involved on your preemptive war with the Holy Roman Empire. It's another to have a direct family member, he's a first cousin, be deposed, potentially killed, by the Holy Roman Emperor. That's a lot more likely to invite retaliation. Yes, it's almost certainly going to spiral out of control at that point. And England is Catholic? No, England is Protestant. Right. They don't have the same uh, inhibitions towards getting involved that, for example, France does. That is a dangerous game to be playing when you're the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, that's Christian out of the, uh, out of the picture. 
And again, we get to the spot where it's kind of like it feels like things are kind of wrapping up a little bit. The Protestant League is a little bit directionless. They don't have a, a firm leader anymore. We're into this kind of game of whack-a-mole that's happening. Um, there is this uh, question of Strelsund, the, the port city, that is hanging out there, but really they're not doing much. There's not that big a problem there. But because the 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 emperor is assuming that eventually they'll they'll fall they won't be an issue like they're they're you know this will get negotiated out at some point is is i think the the uh the impression there they keep kind of poking at it but scottish troops keep showing up in stralsund specifically in stralsund um they are and i'm using air quotes volunteers that are coming over of their own free will mm-hmm. to support their brothers in Stralsunds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're led by a, a Colonel Alexander Leslie, who takes over the defense of Stralsund to such an extent that as his responsibilities kind of grow and grow and grow, he's eventually just made governor of the city and of the immediate area because it seems the easiest way to do it. He's the one taking charge. He's the one calling the shots. Let's make it official. It's kind of weird that some foreign guy who's just here out of the goodness of his heart, wink, is calling all these shots in the way he is. Let's just make him governor. In 1629, the war between Sweden and Poland finally ends. Very favorably for Sweden. And that help that Christian had been looking for even a year ago is finally freed up. And Sweden goes, you know what? You guys are right. This does seem like a dangerous situation. And he also decides to kind of dip his toe into the water in the Holy Roman Empire. And lucky for him, there's a port city on the north of the Holy Roman Empire just waiting to receive him with open arms. And so the Swedish army sails for uh, the mainland of, of Europe. So Denmark agreed Mm -hmm. to not involve themselves in the regional conflict anymore in 1628 yes but this does this constitute them getting back involved no this is sweden it's a completely different power right i guess it's barely an extension of the help that christian asked for in the first place i don't think sweden is getting involved because of that. Because of that. They're I getting involved Sweden for their getting, own interests. Exactly. Right. They, they are also dealing with Catholic powers on their borders and a threat of potential um, exposure to a religious war. Uh, I mean, they just finished fighting the Poles. It's, they know it's dangerous out there. Right. Poles are not an easy uh, enemy. And uh, the Holy Roman Empire, united under a, a Catholic leadership, would not be a, an easy enemy either and not one that they really want to deal with. Right. Um, they've also got kind of holdings a little bit here and there throughout the Holy Roman Empire. I just assume everyone does. <laughs> um, but this is really being led by their their king, Gustavus Adolphus, who um, lands at Stralsund uh, in 1630 along with his troops. And he's going to be like a very hands-on commander. And the Swedish army is very big and very professional, like extremely professional. This up up till now has been a war of mercenaries for the most part. This is a lot of small hired groups that honestly, it wouldn't be that rare for battles to start going bad and them just to go, I don't need to be paid that badly. I'm good. See ya. 
that is a thing that happens and not that rarely. It's one of those things that you, you know, kind of ruins your relation, your, your reputation. It's not something you want to do often as a mercenary, but is it worth dying for? Maybe not. Right. Sweden doesn't have to deal with that. They have a real army and it's a bit of a shock to, um, the Holy Roman empire. They're not really used to seeing this level of professionalism. Gustavus Adolphus had also been talking to a couple of other powers, uh, in Europe before he got started. Specifically France. Now, France had been too busy up until this time, but in 1630, the, the Huguenot Revolt had been put down, and now they didn't really have that same excuse for not having enough money or enough troops. They still didn't want to get involved directly against the Habsburgs. They rightly identified that this would be a bad look in the middle of a religious war, and was also potentially militarily dangerous. But... Cardinal Richelieu was not opposed to the idea of very quietly sending some coin in the direction of their political interests. Hmm. They struck a deal where France began paying a million livres to Sweden per year if they will just keep fighting the Holy Roman Empire, specifically the Habsburgs. And they were doing this on the on the DL? Yes. Hmm. This is paying for the vast majority of Swedish military action. It seems like it was paying for about 80% of it. Um, were they actually able to keep that a secret? For quite some time. Hmm. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Richelieu, I think specifically because of the Three Musketeers, but other, other works as well, gets this... Um, Reputation is a very uh, conniving, self-serving villain for the most part. And I think he did some things to maybe warrant that description. But I think that another potentially equally true version of Cardinal Richelieu is one of an extremely pious man and an extremely um, patriotic man who saw the success of France and the success of Catholicism as being one and the same. And uh, through that interpretation, worked very hard to strengthen French interests at home and abroad. Even if that meant funding a Protestant nation in its war against a Catholic empire. Correct. Because as far as he was concerned, the Habsburgs were doing a poor job of defending Catholicism as it was and weren't necessarily worthy of doing so. And as France was doing a good job of that and was a a worthy successor to that uh, defense of the Catholic Church, um, would be better able to defend Catholicism in Europe if they were less opposed by the Habsburgs. There is some twisted logic here. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. And there are a lot of very, very fair criticisms of Richelieu as a result. That being said, I don't think that necessarily um, means that what he was doing wasn't genuine. Right. And someone can be genuinely wrong, and people often are. Um, I, I don't think it... Uh, I don't think it makes them hypocrites necessarily right. to uh, go about things those, that way. I think that what Richelieu saw himself doing was, I, I think he saw himself as as legitimately uh, 
furthering the interests of the Catholic Church. Now, I should be clear, the Pope did not agree. He often was at odds with Richelieu, especially as um, military action becomes less clandestine and more overt when we get into the final phase of the war. Mm. Um, but yeah, Richelieu really did believe that he was doing the best thing for France and for Catholicism. We've kind of crept towards or, or crept our way through the war fairly quickly in terms of years going by because it, it kind of happens in these five to seven year chunks at a time. And note that we've found our way, uh, we found our way all the way to 1630 here, hmm. which that's a dozen years in. We're, we're, we're a good chunk of the way. Yeah. And the war is looking very different from what it once was. Um, it is now very much a, an international effort, but still very religiously based. People are joining this war uh, partially out of concerns of national interests, but it's national interests through the lens of this conflict between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. The first few years of the Swedish campaign in the Holy Roman Empire are extremely successful for Sweden. I'm sure it doesn't hurt that they're being very handsomely funded by France, but they also have a very good army. Um, and over the course of 1630 to 1634, they managed to take back most of the Protestant losses in Northern Germany. All these little states had kind of been chipped away uh, by Catholic forces over the years through, you know, lack of support and through slow isolation from from uh, from other powers by a fairly uh, well-backed Catholic campaign. Not only does Sweden manage to take basically all of those lace, uh, those losses back, but they managed to take about half of the imperial kingdom, so kingdoms that are directly uh, uh, supporting and funding the uh, the emperor. Mm. And you know, there's not like there's that that's not all of the kingdoms, obviously, but um, it's a good chunk of Catholic kingdoms in the in the course of the the fighting. Um, there's a ma uh, th there's a major defeat of Catholic forces at what's known as the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631, where this this accounts for a, a major turnaround in Sweden's um, or, or in, in, the fort, in the fortunes of these Catholic powers. It's really the moment where Sweden's uh, uh, momentum in, in the action moves forward. They, they gain a lot of supporters in this because when you have this many uh, states, the best way to get supporters is to win a battle. And then people go, wow, if you won one, I bet he can win some more. Let's hitch our horse to this wagon. But that's how it worked in the Holy Roman Empire. So uh, that's what we're looking at. They strike another really strong blow through diplomatic means when they send envoys to Tsar Michael I of Russia. And they convince him that, hey, wouldn't a piece of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth look real good up on that mantelpiece? Uh, the Russians attack Poland in 1632. Now they don't have to worry about those Poles that they were at war with a couple of years previous coming after them. Jeez. So Poland is kind of in this whole thing the entire time, but never actually directly involved. They seem to have the role of being distracted. I think from the primary conflict. Yeah, I think if Poland ever actually got directly involved in any of this, it would have resulted in a very quick Catholic victory. Right. Um, again, we're not talking a ton about them, but their military was incredibly strong. Poland's got a weird history in that way. For for a long time, they're this force that nobody wants to touch, and then they slowly get eaten up until they're not actually a country for 150 years or something like that. Mm. 
yeah it's 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 odd it's it's very odd but anyways um they're not really going to show up in any meaningful capacity other than uh something that everyone else knows that they uh, can't get involved in this or else it's a, a firm catholic victory so they'll just keep being distracted by various means Gustavus Adolphus himself is killed uh, at the Battle of Lützen in 1632. Um, the Swedish army itself won, but uh, losing him personally killed a bunch of their momentum. Mm-hmm. He was a very strong leader. He was a very charismatic man, and there was a lot of personal loyalty ch- tied up in in all of this. It's not to say that the Swedish uh, military wasn't strong after his passing, but it wasn't quite the same after that. I feel like that's a theme that you and I seem to have a lot of war episodes mm-hmm. and I just feel like that's a theme. I was reminded of 1812 and, uh, rock. Yeah. It's interesting what a charismatic leader can do for a battle. It's, it's one of those things that people talk about, you know, important people having impacts on history and, and what that looks like. Um, and I think on a macro level that becomes less important, but I think on the battlefield, sometimes it can really help to have the right guy, you know, at the head of the column, calling the shots. Right. Um, the right guy can convince a lot of people to do uh, what they want them to do. That loss of momentum ends up being kind of devastating for the Swedes. And by 1634, they stop moving forward and they start moving back. They start taking uh, major losses to Imperial troops. Um, again, the, the Habsburgs are seeing uh, a lot of support by the Spanish They're spending as much as they can to just sort of shut this whole thing down. It's been going for nearly two decades. What are you guys doing? Finish this. Um, And the Swedish army is routed at the Battle of Nordlingen. And it's more or less the end of the type of action that they've been doing up until now. Now, I I say that, I I worded that carefully for a reason, which is that they've been uh, fighting basically on behalf of the state of Pomerania, um, it was a tiny Baltic state. And, uh, that kind of gets them around the fact that they're a foreign power fighting in the Holy Roman empire a little bit. It's, it's flimsy. Mm. Everyone knows it's flimsy, but, but it was an excuse they could use a little bit. Yeah. The peace that they negotiate in 1635 forces them to cease action as Pomerania. Um, they're no longer allowed to uh, aid the Pomeranian army, which is technically what they've been doing up until now. And they said, sure, fine. This also helped consolidate uh, some of the Catholic power within the Holy Roman Empire. And it gave the, or at least the the emperor, took for himself uh, significantly um, heightened powers in terms of what he declared himself allowed to impose on German states. Um for the purposes of what we're talking about here, the main one is going to be that he's going to raise an imperial army. He's sick of kind of doing stuff on his own with the Austrian army and trying to wrangle all these various Catholic armies and getting this Spanish army in there. He is now creating one united imperial army. He is done messing around. He is going to bring this to uh, a swift close, uh, he thinks. In and among this peace, um, Protestants in the Northeast are able to keep the territory that they won under the Swedes. Basically, they went, fine, this gets us back more or less to where things started before all of this. Let's just call it even. You guys just aren't allowed to fight us anymore. Amnesty was granted to all German states that took up arms against the emperor after 1630. So after the Swedes invaded, um, basically said, okay, you guys can, 
we we won't touch you guys but like this is it you got to stop fighting us and they kind of drew a line in the sand saying like okay this is it anyone who rebels from now on you're done anyone has started this thing you're done uh you guys we don't want to deal with you so we'll say that you're okay but we're we're done messing around right and things were looking pretty good for the catholics so obviously right about now is when uh france looks at this whole situation and goes all right enough is enough this isn't working anymore we're going to get directly involved oh boy so let's take a break there and when we come back we'll start with the final phase of the war the french intervention and talk about just how well that goes for everybody involved (laughs) sounds good Back here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And, uh-oh, Fran- France is here. <laughs> Things are starting to get ugly. Um, they spent this whole war trying to sort of, sort of uh, influence events while not actually getting involved. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that uh, before the break. It's really awkward for a fellow Catholic power to get involved in a religious war on the Protestant side and... Yeah, the whole thing is just messy and I think goes to show that it's not just a religious war, but at the same time, it's got most of the considerations that would define a religious war, which makes it sometimes harder to act in national interest when, you know, when, when circumstances work out just the right way as it does for France. However, by the time Sweden is being, uh, basically steamrolled by the Holy Roman Empire, Empire, um, Richelieu decides that the threat from being surrounded by the Habsburgs is too great to not get involved on the Protestant side, or as he would probably consider it, the anti-Habsburg side, where he's trying to think of it more in geopolitical terms than he is necessarily in religious terms. Well, and you had mentioned that he was also trying to believe that he, he was furthering Catholicism mm-hmm. by reducing the power that the Habsburgs had. Yeah. The war begins actually not by declaring war on the Holy Roman Empire, but by declaring war on the Spanish Habsburgs. Hmm. There's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, it was pretty obvious that the, or, or it seemed obvious at the time, that the um, German Habsburgs or Austrian Habsburgs um, were not nearly as strong without the support of the fairly centralized, fairly unified Spain, and that a lot of their military success had come from that direct aid from the the senior branch of the Habsburgs. So he thought that by declaring war against Spain, he could avoid getting involved with uh, Germany proper or the German states proper um, while still furthering French interests. See, he wasn't actually interested in Germany, nor was he actually interested in Spain itself. Both of those things are hard to fight. The Rhine is a pretty difficult geographical barrier to get across, as are the Pyrenees. But the Spanish Netherlands, Mm. modern-day Belgium, Flanders. Now, that is a good-looking piece of land. Right. And it is right on France's doorstep. So he has the opportunity here to fight the Spanish Habsburgs and tie up the troops from supporting the the Austrian Habsburgs in the process by fighting them as far away from Spain as he can get in the Spanish Netherlands, 
which gives him the best chance of gaining territory, which is a, a stated goal of this war, makes it as militarily feasible as possible by uh, being far away from the source of their military power, Spain, having the entirety of France that the Spanish Habsburgs would have to go through to support this military action. You have the Austrian Habsburgs far too involved with their own military actions to support the Spanish Habsburgs. This is looking pretty good, actually. Slam dunk. Eh, not quite, but <laughs> about as close a thing as you can get when you're declaring war, right? Yeah. Um, it also, if they're successful, it eliminates one of the three sides that they're surrounded by Habsburgs on. Right. So it, it's all looking pretty good. Now, remember, just before the break, we talked about Sweden uh, agreeing no longer to um, support uh, Pomerania militarily. There's a bit of an oversight here on the part of the Habsburgs, which is that it doesn't say anything about Sweden getting directly involved in this war, <laughs> which they do. They basically reorganize the army um, into a Swedish army and... They're understanding this time that they're no longer talking about little states fighting little states. So it's not this little kind of agile little military force that's, uh, you know, raising support throughout these uh, these tiny states. They realize that what they're going to be fighting is that imperial army that we talked about the emperor raising at the end of the last section. Right. They are expecting continental scale full pitched battles. And this is how they reorganize their military. Just through practical considerations, France does end up declaring war against the Holy Roman Empire uh, a, a little over a year later in August of 1636. So they will be at war with both, but really the focus is going to be on Spain. Those are the Habsburgs that they're most concerned about. The reorganized Swedes roll back into uh, the German states and they confront the imperial forces at the Battle of Wittstock, which surprisingly they end up winning for a pretty uh decisively defeated army to come back around that quickly is pretty impressive just from some reorganization about how they were approaching it by the sounds of it more or less but again they're no longer fighting these kind of sporadic catholic forces they're fighting this one grand army and they're used to fighting poland this is a little bit more their speed right um it's an interesting thing sometimes when you're too good at fighting big forces you get less good at fighting small forces it's about specialization hmm. um you see that in kind of uh, asymmetrical warfare to this very day right um sometimes the big powerful stuff doesn't do so well with people on the ground early on france has a lot less success though um that slam dunk that you were talking about never really manifests the way that it seems like it should on paper um the Spanish forces have some pretty decent success at driving back the French. Um, the, the forces that had been left in, uh, in the Spanish Netherlands were uh, a lot better seasoned than the French were necessarily expecting mm -hmm. and uh, ended up driving French forces back pretty significantly to the point that they got as far as Paris in 1636 before being driven back. Now, it's not a long way from Flanders to Paris, uh, as we'd find out in various world war one plans but uh considering that you have a, a fairly centralized strong military going up against a pretty small and isolated force you wouldn't expect that outcome necessarily 
fighting basically seesaws back and forth between France and the Spanish Netherlands for the next four years or so. Uh, up until 1640, there's no clear victor. Um, Paris is safe fairly quickly after that, but like you, you don't have either force getting a, a, a major uh, victory. And all of a sudden we're at 1640, right? Like again, the, the years just keep rolling by. A lot of the issue with this uh, topic, as we talked about at the very beginning of the first part, is that like there's so much stuff going on that to make it clear, you end up jumping over a lot of details. Right. Um, but if we start getting into those details, it's both going to become virtually incomprehensible and way too long. So <laughs> we're just going to keep. Yeah. That, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we have pretty 30, much have to keep 30 years doing together. this. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that and getting into all these battles one by one is kind of boring. Yeah. Boring. That's the word I wanted. I, I think. Yeah. You hear about the the big ones. Finally, in 1640, the French managed to take uh, uh, a major fortress in um, Spanish Netherlands. And um, from there, have significant enough victories that by 1643, uh, their victory at the Battle of Recroy is um, pretty much the end of the Spanish Netherlands, at least within the context of this war. They can kind of turn their attention to uh, imperial forces. Those victories in Flanders, uh, the French victories in Flanders specifically, start in 1640 spurring separatist movements within the Iberian Peninsula itself. Keep in mind that it's only really been united under the Spanish crown for 150 years, which is a long time. But there are a lot of kingdoms involved in Spain that to this day don't see themselves as Spanish. There's a a pretty strong uh, separatist movement that is, you know... There was significant action last year. Um, Yeah, and um, that's uh, Catalonia specifically? Yeah, yeah, Catalonia. Um, They do not see themselves as Spanish. It's it's a... well, a little bit familiar to us in Canada, but uh, it's it's not as uh, homogenous as you would think. Also, up until this point, um, the Portuguese crown had been under personal union with the Spanish crown for about 60 years. Personal union means that the two kingdoms are separate, but the same person is king of both. That's Mm. actually the same situation that is going on up in uh, England and Scotland at this point, right? There's a kingdom of England and a kingdom of Scotland, but the same person is king of both. That's uh, what's known as a personal union. Um, And those are always a little bit contentious until you actually get them made into like a, a political union. And that's what's going to end up happening in Britain in 1707. But in Spain, uh, Portugal goes, you know what? We're actually done with this. We want our own king. Um, Portugal has a pretty strong independent uh, history. And uh, yeah, with the with the sort of reduction in Habsburg power, they sort of saw it as a, an opportunity to assert their own independence. Hmm. So not only are they having trouble uh, defending Spanish Netherlands, but the Habsburgs are unable to keep the peace within their own, uh, you know, homeland. So this, uh, for all intents and purposes, takes them out of uh, the fighting uh, in larger Europe. They're basically embroiled in a civil war at this point. Um, France actually... um, financially supports some of these uprisings uh, specifically catalonia as well at this point hmm. uh, they've they've always been a, a very independent uh, region of spain um and it would eventually turn into like direct military support after the spanish netherlands falls back in the holy roman empire in 1642 
you could make an argument that this was the last great battle of the 30 years war. It's called the second battle of Breitenfeld in which, um, there's about 20,000 Swedish troops, uh, brought to field against 26,000 Imperial troops. So at a slight disadvantage, but it's basically even numbers at those, uh, you know, at those levels, mm. um, a thousand troops here and there don't make that much of a difference after a while. The Swedes managed to defeat the Imperial army with only 4,000 combined casualties on their side. So that's wounded and killed. Um, the Imperials took nearly 10,000 casualties. It was fairly significant. Yeah. What's more, the uh, Swedes managed to uh, take prisoner a lot of the ones that are not killed or wounded. Mm. And they captured 46 field guns from the Holy Roman Empire in the process. This is not an era in which cannons, like full battlefield-sized cannons, are mass-produced. They're valuable commodities and very useful commodities. Those guns are going to be turned directly back at the Habsburgs very shortly. Fighting will continue from this period on, but this is the this is the big one. Um, Denmark-Norway actually re-enters the war, but not against the Habsburgs. They decide to fight Sweden. <laughs> what? The Swedes are tied up in Europe. These are historical enemies. They figure maybe this is an opportunity to take back some of the territory that they lost in trying to fight the Habsburgs. <laughs> this is one of those difficult things about the uh, Thirty Years' War. I've seen charts with dozens of states listed, and they're color-coded. Basically, um, it'll usually be four colors. Um, directly against the Habsburgs, indirectly against the Habsburgs directly for the Habsburgs or indirectly for the Habsburgs. Some of these states have all four colors throughout the series, or the, throughout the war. Right. They just, how things like this go, again, that's that political aspect of a religious uh, uh, conflict. So it doesn't really go all that well for Denmark-Norway, but it's, uh, it's enough to hamper Sweden a little bit. I thought they expected Sweden to help them in the first place. Yeah. And then as soon as Sweden actually does jump in, admittedly a little late for their tastes, maybe that was part of the problem. I, I think it is part of the problem there. And I, I think also the assumption that they were ever going to help was probably far-fetched. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do have historical enemies uh, helping one another in this, in this uh, conflict. Uh, um, England and France actually support each other against the Spanish Habsburg at one point. And that's almost just, unheard of. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, it happens. Um, but yeah, the, the Swedes barely notice it. Honestly, they were so reduced by their um, conflict with the Habsburgs that Denmark, Norway was in not as big a threat. The Swedes actually managed to set siege to Vienna, which is a big deal. And they managed to actually take part of Prague. Not all of Prague, but they do manage to take the part, including uh, Prague Castle, which is where all of this started in the first place. Right. In 1645, there's a major French defeat at the Battle of Herbsthausen. The Bavarians, while technically being under the imperial banner, Bavaria was large enough that they, in principle, kept con command of their own army uh, and had a, a fairly high degree of autonomy to, to work um, as long as it was at least somewhat within imperial uh, uh, goals. It was not a problem for them to command their own army. So um, that was a pretty major blow to the French. We're getting close to the end of the war. This is 1645, and, and the war 
technically ends in 1648. Um, we should mention something, which is that this has been going on for almost 30 years. Right. There's been a lot of change uh, that's happened. I mean, that's that's a self-evident statement to make, but um, specifically in leadership. Um, and a lot of it starts happening right around now. In 1632, Frederick V had died. He's the one that had been agitating uh, from from abroad for uh, the Protestant cause ever since he had been deposed from um, uh, Bohemia. His son, Ferdinand III, took over and he had grown up. He had spent his entire life um, embroiled in this 30-year war and he was not really interested in con uh, continuing it. He saw his father's cause as being something of a lost one. Um, you know, he, he, he spent decades kind of reliving past glories in a, in a certain way without having much effect. And Ferdinand III was not, not interested in holding up that legacy. He didn't want to be that with his life. And so he actually started agitating for an end to the war. He saw it as being wasteful, as being, uh, as having gone on too long. He, he uh, was advocating for a return to Augsburg, basically. Or sorry, I said his son was Ferdinand III. His son was Charles Louis. No, Ferdinand II died in 1637, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, right. In 1637. So his his son, Ferdinand III, same thing, though. I mean, grew up in the midst of this war, saw no point in continuing it. Um, he had watched the... This is the emperor's son. This is the emperor's son. Okay. He had watched the emperor, uh, the imperial army, fight basically a stalemate war for decades. And it was kind of like, can we get back to the business of running an empire here? things have gotten too messy and too dangerous to continue this. Cardinal Richelieu had died in 1642. Uh, this is in the midst of kind of the French army's biggest push towards victory. And he was such a singular driving force behind French foreign policy and uh, national um, sort of consolidation that his loss made... France somewhat more approachable in terms of like potential for peace. Hmm. You don't have this, you know, extremely nationalistic person agitating for war anymore. Maybe there's something that can be worked out with successors. Right. Likewise, Louis the Thirteenth had died in 1643. This is right, uh, you know, as as France right before actually France wins their biggest uh, victory in Flanders, and. The two years after his son becomes king, Louis XIV, he becomes king at the age of five. And this can, coincides directly with, um, you know, these major French defeats. Likewise, the political situation in France gets really hairy again. There's a, a we don't have to get into the whole thing, but there's some internal challenges to power. When you have a five-year-old king who's, uh, you know, not, is technically the king, but really a bunch of regents are ruling. Yeah. Um, and you have a country that has just been through sort of a forced consolidation of power. There's no way that the nobles are not going to rebel against this. And that's exactly what he starts dealing with. So France starts pulling back in terms of their involvement in the 30 years war, um, in interest of dealing with these internal conflicts, they've got to centralize. And the eventual result of this is that, um, France's, power is never as centralized as it's going to be under Louis the 14th. That's literally what his uh, reign is known for um, is, is a practical abolition of, of, you know, day-to-day um, -day noble power in the, in the provinces. Hmm. All of this culminates in, 
you know, beginning in 1644, these warring parties begin actively seeking uh, peace negotiations through diplomatic channels. And this sort of coalesces into um, two cities in the uh, in the state of Westphalia, uh, Onesbruck and Munster. Onesbruck be, or Osnabrück, sorry, Osnabrück being a, a Catholic city and Munster being a, a Protestant city. I hope I haven't gotten those backwards. Uh, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was, um, with different parties preferring to negotiate in either city, but they go back and forth. And the years between 1644 and 1648 see military action, absolutely, but not nearly as much as there used to be. Things are winding down. They absolutely are. All parties are interested in finding a resolution to this. Part of the challenge of these talks is exactly what we were talking about, the fact that there are hundreds of states, literally hundreds of states involved here. And there isn't one single, people sometimes, myself included, will sometimes talk of it as the the Treaty of Westphalia, which is not a thing. There was no one treaty. You never got all of these signatories together in one place and signed them all onto the same treaty. There's over 100 people negotiating at these talks at various times for various things. But in 1648, you finally get to um, what's known as the Peace of Munster, which is a, a treaty that basically signs all of the major uh, agitators in this conflict to uh, a ceasefire. It's not absolute. Um, the French and Spanish War would continue on until 1659. Uh, Portugal and Spain would, con- would continue to be at war even longer after that. Right. And arguably those conflicts are part of the 30 years war, but they're also their own thing. And they started during the 30 years war, but I suppose they're significant enough to be considered separate. Yeah, basically that's, that's a, I think that's a fair uh, assessment, but I, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, everything didn't just stop in 1648. Right. Uh, it didn't cover every, uh, every case, even though most of these players were at the table. Um, you know, the biggest ones you'd see were France, Sweden, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, like the, specifically the imperial delegation, um, the Spanish, the Dutch, uh, the Swiss Confederacy, who we haven't really talked about because they've mostly stayed neutral in this whole thing. They're Calvinist and we're just kind of watching the whole thing crumble around them. Um, didn't like to get involved too much. And, um, you know, the papacy and Venice are there uh, serving as moderators. Um, so that's one thing the Pope is still very, very good at. Uh, diplomatically is serving as a go-between. The number one thing that's uh, recognized by all parties is we need to put put the piece of Augsburg back in place. It needs to be modified, though. Specifically, Calvinism needs to be added as a a third acceptable option. And that's going to prevent some of the cracks in the the piece of Augsburg that came around the first time. Um, It's been a while since we talked about it. So just to reiterate, what the piece of Augsburg said was that um, each state has the right to choose their own state religion. And that's based on the head of state having that choice. Within a state, um, you don't have to tolerate another religion, but people must be uh, able to freely leave your state for a religiously compatible other state uh, if they so choose. There's lots of kind of asterisks that go behind that, but that's that's more or less what's going on with the Peace of Augsburg. And what that gives you is sort of a, you know, in, in places like France, that just covers the entire nation. But in the Holy Roman Empire that's divided up, you get this patchwork of, you know, sort of little self-determining uh, 
uh, states that are desi- deciding their own you know, religious destiny, if you will. The papacy didn't particularly like that the Peace of Augsburg was being held up, and they especially didn't like that Calvinism was being added. So that's the one addendum to the uh, Peace of Augsburg was that you could have any state religion you wanted as long as it was one of the two that we say that it's okay to be. Um, this just adds a third option. So you can be Lutheran, you can be Catholic, or you can be Calvinist uh, or reform if you prefer. The other big change that gets made to the uh, Peace of Augsburg, though, is that Christians are no longer forced to relocate if their denomination doesn't match the majority one. Hmm. So you can stay and there are rather limited, but, you know, now extant uh, religious protections put in place for minority religions. Hmm. You Did this extend be... beyond the three? No. Yeah. No, it didn't. No, come on. <laughs> what are you talking about? Of course not. Um, no, but if, Too you're, good to be true. if you're one of the three, um, you have uh, protection to practice as you will in the private of your own home. And you have, they, they would basically like allot certain times on certain days of the week for public uh, celebration, which seems extremely limited. But the fact of the matter is there are um, German states, there there are even bishoprics, which means that they're firmly under the thumb of the Catholic Church that would have Lutheran churches Hmm. and that legally were required to allow that. Um, you get other states, not many of them, but the Dutch Republic is one of them that expands this religious protection, but it's not, it wasn't something that was agreed to as part of this, uh, peace proceeding. The Pope was also very upset about that. The Pope was upset about a lot of things. <laughs> um, the Dutch Republic was not only safe, but now, uh, widely recognized and acknowledged as an independent state, um, which is you know, great for their self-determination, but is also great for their uh, religious tolerance. Because as we mentioned, they're one of the few states that uh, legally recognize the existence of Jewish people. Um, So that ends the 80 years war uh, as part of the whole package. So uh, we we talked about that briefly, but that was the whole, um, what is now the Netherlands basically splitting away from what is now Belgium in an attempt to have Protestantism as a state religion uh, against the wishes of the Spanish Habsburgs who were Catholic. Right. There's so many territorial and financial adjustments that, I mean, let's not get into it. A bunch of borders move, a bunch of money change hands. <laughs> let's call it there. <laughs> Fair enough. More importantly than I think most of these other things, though, is an acknowledgement of the exclusive sovereignty of the state, which, which sounds like a really self-evident thing to say. But keep in mind the patchwork of responsibilities that the average citizen or the average small government in the Holy Roman Empire had at the beginning of all this. We talked about it a bit. What is a what, what is a um, mayor of a small town who is Catholic do when being called on by the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, especially if it's against the will or against the interests of that small town, right. politically speaking? Yeah. What this agreement does is say, listen, what happens in the borders of your state is your state's business. And no other sovereign state has the right to interfere in any of that. That's huge. It's massive. It's also incredibly disruptive. (laughs) Because what it does is take the Holy Roman Empire, which 
yes, is fractured at this point in time, but is still, for all intents and purposes, a, a cohesive political unit through the, you know, personal um, rule of the emperor and turns it into this this patchwork quilt of independent states, which massively undercuts the power of the emperor. Yeah. Because all of a sudden they don't really need to do what he says. Interesting. Through social convention, of course they will. Yes. But legally. But legally they don't have to. Yeah. And that's always a dangerous distinction to make because all of a sudden you're, you're, you're depending on social norms for political power mm. rather than uh, legal convention. Right. And when those two things uh, contradict each other, generally things stay with the social norms until you get to a time of stress, whatever that stress happens to be. And then you realize how flimsy that actually is. Right. Hmm. This also means in a lot of ways, and this is why the Pope is so upset, the end of the Reformation. Because you can argue that that all ended in you know 1555 with the the peace of augsburg but up until now you don't really have religious uh, autonomy because you don't have that guarantee of the sovereignty of the state right and so even though augsburg said let's all play nice it wasn't enshrined in law until these agreements this especially this is why the pope was so upset by this clause specifically it limits his ability to call for the destruction of Protestantism in Europe because legally he has no authority to do so. Right. And spiritually, yes, he absolutely can. But what he's doing is asking his spiritual subjects, I guess, his his congregation, his flock, whatever you want to call it. He's asking Catholics everywhere to violate their legal agreements. And the thing is, Honoring legal agreements is actually a really important thing to do, spiritually speaking. It strips him of so much political power. Now, yes, there are still the papal states that are under his direct control, and there's still a lot of uh, Catholic nations who, push comes to shove, will support those papal states in warfare. But he doesn't have that ability to directly, personally call on people. And this is where you get... The beginnings, and it's going to be a while before you really see it, but you get the beginnings of those divisions of church and state. The Pope at this time is um, Innocent X, and the condemnation that he writes of all of this in a in a papal bull afterwards is scathing. It is it is he he is extremely upset. Not a lot of times you get to see a, a, a pope like fully mad. This is one of them though. <laughs> didn't do him any good though. Sure didn't. It, it, it's gone. That that ship had sailed. Yeah. This is the last of the major religious wars in Europe. Um, there's going to be outbreaks here and there, but, you know, it's, it's for all intents and purposes, done. And that's another reason to kind of point to it as the end of the Reformation. This is the last time the Reformation is hashed out on the battlefield in a, you know, on a major scale. Right. And the Protestants won. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're talking about this and it's not even really a clear winner or loser, right? Um, but... I think if you had to pick one, I would say it's it's won by the Protestants. If you look at how things started mm-hmm. versus how they ended up, yep. I, I don't think you can argue with that. Really, the really the war is fought to a stalemate for the most part, but the things that the Habsburgs were looking for from this war did not come about. No. Their enemies gained many more concessions. And in a way, 
the existence of Protestantism itself is a political action that is legitimized by this war. Right. Um, because as we said in the beginning, when we were talking about that first year, year course that I took, uh, it is absolutely not true that the Reformation is a spiritual only event and that it has no political ramifications. It does. It has very real ones. And they don't entirely shake out until the Peace of Westphalia. This is where it comes to a, a final close. Right. This creates the modern system of nation states. Really, when you think about it, um, it's, it's maybe a stretch to say that it's fully formed from this, but um, political scientists will talk about the the, uh, the Westphalian system uh, in response to the norms that are set up uh, at this piece, this idea of the inviolability of the sovereignty of the state rather than of the person. Because keep in mind, sovereign is a word that used to refer to the, the monarch, like the ruler, right? Right. This is taking that inviolability, that sacredness, that sanctity away from that person and making the physical borders and political borders of the state similarly inviolable. And this is really important to the way that modern countries relate to one another. The, you know, our entire diplomatic system is based on this premise our system for declaring war is based on this premise. War doesn't seem like the kind of thing that has a ton of rules, but it absolutely does. I mean, some of them are are thousands of years old. You don't you don't kill emissaries. This is the thing that they that the uh, um, the Bohemians broke when they threw uh, emissaries out of the window in Prague. Right. This is the same thing that you know. This is the same thing that ticked off the the uh, the Persians when the Spartans did it over 2000 years ago it's the same thing don't kill the messenger this, this, this is sparta yeah exactly that's the one <laughs> from that terrible terrible movie that we're not going to talk about right now. that historically accurate documentary i couldn't find a thing wrong with it <laughs> um you don't kill the messenger like that's that's our rule and it has been a rule for so long and and this piece just puts so many more of those rules in place things like wars end through diplomatic negotiation this is one of the first times that this happens on a large scale but more importantly, even though it's happened many times before, because it happens in this, uh, on this large scale and because it puts these rules in place, it establishes itself as the way that wars end. This is why, you know, the Napoleonic Wars end in a, in a conference room at Versailles, right? Like this is why um, the French Revolution is, is, is hashed out um, diplomatically, you know, when all this stuff comes to an end. It's, it's why World War I is, is figured out at Versailles. This is how you do it. You send envoys, you get together in a conference and they talk about it and they negotiate a treaty, even though there's people fighting in battlefields. It's not necessarily about, did you kill the king at that battle? It's not necessarily about, did you rout the entire army and they have nothing left to fight with? You can end a war with players still out there on the field, ready to go because we don't have to fight to a standstill. This is so important to the way that international relations work right and we don't really talk about it that much because it's complicated and it's long and difficult and not I, i'm saying this at the end of talking about this for two full episodes but not always that interesting sometimes a little bit dry i mean you definitely had my attention the whole time but 
it's it's complicated. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of things happening. I, I think I say that more in relation to other subjects that also get pointed to as you know, architects of the modern world, such right. as uh, the French Revolution or the First World War, where it's like, this is big and exciting. This and is monumentally important. And, and with the Thirty Years' War, it's a lot of, wait, who's doing what again and why? Right. why? Why is this person mad? And it turns out that it's something that happened 80 years before and uh, no one really quite understands it, but sure are going to leverage it. And what's Transylvania doing here again? And on and on and on. There's other things that we can talk about in relationship to the... 30 years war we, we took a very macro view of it so we didn't really get into a lot of the societal stuff but it was a big deal like a very big deal over 8 million people died in some way shape or form as a result of this war most of which are residents of the holy roman empire right um the vast majority of them this causes a 30 percent population drop for germany wow or the german states yeah and it's not just violence, although a lot of it is directly violence. It's things like um, famine that uh, that is caused when armies are marching around requisitioning food. Um, it's about um, displacement when uh, you're living in a place and then all of a sudden your leader has been deposed and now the state religion has switched and you have to get up and leave everything. You have to leave everything. And Whoever did the deposing might not be following Augsburg. They might not be letting you leave peacefully. I mean, Bohemia was cleared out of Protestants and they weren't let go just, you know, peacefully. They were yeah. forced out. Um, there were massive casualties as a result of that. And then that displacement and those famines lead to plague. This is already a period in Europe where the bubonic plague just kind of pops up every once in a while. And... You know, the early 1600s, there were some very serious plague, year, plague years in there. Um, people were in poorly sanitized environments and were not healthy because they were not eating enough. And those are the kind of things that exacerbate uh, things like plague. Right. It was terrible enough that people were making decisions like delaying marriages and delaying starting families and uh trying to decide where to move their families and wondering if they're going to see family members again all of this people don't stop having families for small reasons that says a lot about what the expected situation was like in germany at this point in time um we, we talked about a 30% drop in all of the Holy Roman Empire in general, but there's lots of states where they saw, you know, upwards of 60% population loss. Um, the number of young men specifically that were killed in the fighting was astronomical. It was extremely disruptive. It ranks up with some of the worst plagues and natural disasters uh, in terms of loss of life in uh, what is now Germany. It was it, it was a, a, a terrible, terrible conflict. And that's one of the dangers of breezing through something like this so quickly is you don't get a chance to mention the fact that like, hey, there's a lot of people dying here. Yeah. Um, this isn't just uh, a chess game being played by a bunch of nobles. This is having a very real impact. It's 30 on an years entire generation and a massive amount of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is not this is not a short little thing. Um, you know, we talk about the. Well, we talk about there. There is the very real disruption of the Second World War, for example. That was six years long. Like thirty years is a long time to be at that level of war. Yeah, 
lest we think that the war was entirely political by the end, there's a massive uptick in the number of uh, witch hunts during the entire 30 years war. And that's exacerbated by, you know, religious tensions. There's a lot of these very uh, Catholic or very Protestant states that are finding people who may just disagree with them a little bit religiously that end up being burned at the stake. Um, in Würzburg alone, uh, between 1626 and 1630, over a thousand people are killed. Uh, over 200 of those are by the state, burned at the stake by the state. Jeez. Another 900 or so, uh, we think, uh, numbers on this aren't good, yeah. but we're pretty sure over 900 uh, uh, others killed by citizens killing other people that are being accused of witchcraft. And that's, I mean, we did a, an entire episode on on witch hunts but or, or witch trials, but it's very much a, an expression of this... Um, uncertainty and and uh turmoil that's the, the that everyone's going through um it's an incredibly disruptive period in european history but yep complicated yes confusing sometimes um, but very important and very impactful yes absolutely so you know overall we're looking at a, an establishment of a sphere of influence political balance in europe this is where you get like the the idea of the five great powers who sort of keep each other in check right because it, it really brings up france's place in in europe but it really uh, diminishes the the habsburgs and it's less that they kind of fade into obscurity and more it brings them to a place where other powers can actually do something about what they're up to this system is going to stay in place really certainly through the Napoleonic Wars and, and arguably up until World War I. Um, this is just the order of politics in Europe. Uh, it's established at this point, uh, more or less, with many uh, revisions to come. Right. So that's the Thirty Years' War. I think we covered uh, enough of it to, to make it somewhat comprehensible. I'm a little worried about this one, I'll be honest. I think it went fine, but there's, there's so much you have to cut just in terms of... Uh, understandability and, and time constraints that you know i always encourage people to look into it a little bit more if it's something that fascinates them this one more than anything there's so much material out there it's so well covered um we have really good information about things that happened in very very tiny uh german villages um that give you a really granular look at what it's like to live through something like this that um there's there's a wealth of information out there we, we barely scratched the surface um i forgot one more uh, thing a third of german towns uh, disappeared in this period the towns themselves towns yes jeez um mostly de de destroyed by the swedes right um that accounts to about 1500 towns and more than 18,000 villages uh, villages a very small unit of people living in a similar but still, area but just to give you an idea of the scale. level of uh displacement that's involved jeez the 30 years war um gift that keeps going keeps on giving in terms of <laughs> Um, just, just, uh, just a wealth of information out there that comes at you real fast. So, uh, any, any questions, any comments, uh, I always use, uh, leave, leave it to you to kind of get the last word in on or, or see if there's I, anything I missed. I, I think you covered it really well. I mean, there, it's very clear. There's a lot of things that I didn't get to learn here and I'll be doing some research of my own for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I applaud your construction of a narrative that we were able to fit into this <laughs> into this time slot and yeah. still have me comprehending it i i feel like at a macro level i've got a, a pretty good understanding of, of what went on well that was my main worry for this topic was that we get uh we, we get those threads real lost so uh I, i'm i'm glad you're able to keep up that means that hopefully i've done my job here and uh 
yeah thank you for uh thank you for recommending this this topic i think it's potentially overdue given the number of other things that uh tie into it uh either very directly or uh indirectly i mean in a lot of ways you can't talk about something like uh napoleon without at least a, a somewhat of an understanding of all of this so right. um we're we're long overdue i think so awesome uh thank you so much for coming on and uh look forward to having you back sometime soon thanks for having me i look forward to it the 30 years war is long complicated and at times unglamorous while events like the Napoleonic Wars or the Russian Revolution stand as these dramatic set pieces with self-evident impact on history, this conflict is more down and dirty. What it lacks in manifestos and final charges, it makes up for with difficult negotiations over issues like the sovereignty of the modern nation-state and the right of self-determination and the nature of religious freedoms. In short, a good understanding of European history absolutely requires an understanding, at least on a high level, of the Thirty Years' War. We're long overdue to talk about it. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the Ottoman Empire. The first episode will be up in early October. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.